0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to this week's BMJ podcast. My name is David Payne. A traumatic death can be very difficult for friends and family to deal with, and a clinician's instinct may be to protect them from seeing the extent of the damage to the body. However, this might not be the best thing in the long term. Duncan Jarvis talks to Alison Chappell about her research into people's experience of viewing the body after a traumatic death.
1: Looking
2: back, was it the right thing to go and see him? Oh yes, I couldn't have borne not to have seen him. Mm. I think it was, oh yes, definitely, we needed to see him, but I couldn't grasp, I couldn't grasp it, I couldn't grasp that this would be mm. the last time I would see my, my son.
0: The National Patient Safety Agency regularly issues safety alerts highlighting a clinical problem that can be averted. Mabel Chu talks to the NPSA about this latest alert looking at digital tourniquets.
3: And some little time ago we became aware uh, that particularly some young children were uh, having problems having received a tourniquet around their finger for a small operation when unfortunately the tourniquet hadn't been removed in time and sadly this could even result in some instances of the child or an adult losing part of that finger or the whole finger.
0: But before that, I'm joined by Berta Twizzleman, who's going to talk about the news that's caught her eye this week. Hi, David. Yes, hello, Berta. So what caught your eye in the news this week?
4: Well, the first story is a UK-based story. It's about results reported from a big randomised controlled trial um, that were reported in The Lancet this week, which make a very strong case for a new national screening programme for colorectal cancer.
0: Right, okay, so tell us more about that.
4: Cancer experts in the UK have called for a new screening programme for colorectal cancer by putting all people older than 55 through a one-off five-minute sigmoidoscopy examination. Right, okay, and why is that? Well, bowel cancer is the third most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK and the second most common cause of death among cancers, so there's obviously a case to be made for screening out cases as early as possible. And the technique of sigmoidoscopy uses a flexible endoscope and examines only the sigmoid colon, the lower part of the bowel, um, and it's a procedure that can be done by doctors and specially trained nurses on an outpatient basis. And um, it's brief, so it doesn't need long preparation. So it's 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 just a very quick and relatively easy procedure, which will capture two-thirds of colorectal cancers because they usually appear in that location. So that's why the researchers conclude that it would be a suitable s- tool for screening.
0: So I believe you're going from the UK now to Spain. Tell us about your story from Spain.
4: Yes, that's right. A clinical team of 30 um, transplanted a full face um, to a young man aged between 25 and 35 at the end of March. Right. Now, this is this the first face transplant? It's not actually the first... Face transplant, that was done in France um, in 2005. But it's the first full face transplant because, as I understood it, this young man had an accident that pretty much um, totally destroyed the centre of his face, including the nose, the eyelids, um, the lips, everything. Yes. So tell us more about it. The young guy had already undergone nine operations in an attempt to restore some functionality The doctors had started assessing him in 2007, and in 2009, the Spanish Transplant Authority gave its approval. And once a donor had been found, the patient was put on an immunosuppressant regimen, obviously, so he wouldn't reject Mm. the face. And the donor's face, a silicon mold, was made of it, so the body wasn't without a face, even though his face had been harvested. Right. I think at first they connected the face to the femoral artery in order to uh, guarantee good vascularization. And when that was successful, they then removed the entire soft tissue and remains of the patient's cheekbones and mandibles and connected all the main arteries and veins of the face. And that took them about half an hour. They then sculpted the bones to fit the new face and used titanium manipulates to create the cheekbones. They then recreated the jaw so that the patient would be able to chew properly. And after that, the five main nerve branches and numerous smaller nerve branches were connected. All in all, the operation took 24 hours. And uh, it is said that the patient is making a very good recovery and the case is progressing favorably. Um, Apparently, he should be able to... Smile and chew once the nerves have been fully restored within four to six months. Right.
0: Well, don't forget, if you want to comment on that story or the other one that Berta talked about, or indeed any others, you can do so on bmj.com. Thank you very much, Berta. Thank you. Now Duncan Jarvis finds out how people deal with viewing the body after traumatic death.
5: Looking back, was it the right thing to go and see him? Oh,
2: yes. I couldn't have borne not to have seen him. I think it was, oh, yes, definitely... We needed to see him, but I couldn't grasp. I couldn't grasp it. I couldn't grasp that this would be mm. the last time I would see my my son.
1: The voices you just heard were Alison Chapel, who is a medical sociologist from the Department of Primary Healthcare at the University of Oxford. Alison was interviewing Pat. Pat lost her son in a car crash and was one of the subjects of Alison's research, published online this week on vmj.com. Alison, you work with Health Talk Online, a website that collates people like Pat's experiences of the healthcare system. Could you tell us a little bit more about the website?
5: This website was started about 10 years ago by two very inspiring people, Dr. Anne McPherson and Dr. Andrew Herxheimer. Anne McPherson developed breast cancer, and even though she's a GP, she wanted to know what it was like from the patient's point of view. And Andrew Hertzheimer had to have a knee replaced, and again, he wanted to know what it was like from the patient's point of view. So they recognised how important it was to listen to patients' experiences. So they started this website, and over the last 10 years, we've collected uh, interviews with about 50 different uh, illnesses or health conditions, and this is now on the website. You can see at videos, listen to people's voices and read their accounts of their experiences. Mainly used for people who develop a condition and want to know what it's like, but also used for teaching, teaching medical students and also for research.
1: Talking of research, we've published online this week your study of people's experiences of viewing the body of their relative after a traumatic death. Now you've interviewed lots of people and obviously heard a wide range of experiences, Were there any overarching themes that came out of your interviews?
5: Yes. After the interviews were done, all the interviews are transcribed, fully transcribed, and then we pulled out what everybody said on each subject. And Sue Zeebland, one of my colleagues, and I looked at all the data, and viewing the body became something that was clearly very important to people for various reasons. They wanted to say goodbye. One woman, for example, said it was more important for her sitting beside the body of her daughter saying goodbye where she could see her body, where she could see her daughter, than when it came to the funeral where there was a closed casket. They wanted to make sure there had be no mistake, to make sure it really was their son or daughter, the person they loved. And some people wanted to still go on caring for the body. They wanted to care for that person. They seemed to think that the body was still their person. It's still their their loved one one woman went as far as going out to buy a new fur coat to put on the body of her daughter before the funeral she wanted to keep her daughter warm so they still wanted to care for the body as though the body had social identity and a few felt they, still, they ought to see the body. They had an obligation, perhaps for religious reasons. They felt they ought to wash and dress the body, ready for the funeral. And one person, one or two people, said that the image might have been worse than reality. So they wanted to see the person rather than imagine what the person was like when they were dead.
1: Now, obviously, we're talking about traumatic deaths here, which will mean that the body will be in, in various states, some that would be very distressing. How did people react to, to various different states of the body?
5: Yes. Some people said that they'd only been allowed or it would have been suggested that they should only see part of the body. But, for example, uh, one couple saw their, the body of their dead son after a car crash, and they only saw his hand. But just seeing the hand was far better than nothing, they said. They were really pleased that they'd been able to touch his hand. There were two people... I interviewed who regretted seeing the body after the death. And perhaps that was because they weren't well prepared for what they were going to see, and they hadn't made that choice. They felt they had to identify the body, and nobody had explained to them that they actually had a choice. They could have um, the body could have been identified using dental records or DNA.
1: Some of the people you interviewed dealt with the coroner's office, and the body was the subject of a forensic investigation.
5: Yes, many of the people had been to see the body of the dead relative or friend, but they were quite distressed because they hadn't been able to touch the body or possibly they'd been allowed just to kiss the forehead of the person they'd lost. Also, some of the people we interviewed were upset because the coroner's officer or the police had remained in the room watching them all the time. They wanted time alone with the body of the person they'd lost. And they weren't allowed to touch the body for forensic reasons. The coroner's officer or the coroner was worried that forensic evidence might be disturbed. But some of the people we interviewed felt quite distressed and sad that they hadn't been able to be left alone and touch the the body of the person they'd lost and they loved.
1: So their feeling of distress overruled their perhaps desire to make sure that everything was done to try and catch the perpetrator of a murderer. I
5: think so, yes.
2: But of course the coroner's officer, and I guess it's a rule of some sort, but she came into the place with me and was standing on the other side of a glass glass screen where she could see me the whole time. So I wasn't allowed to be with Matthew on with my son on my own. I wasn't allowed to be. And I am sorry about that and I don't understand why it is that a mother cannot be with her child. I could not have washed him. I could not have dressed him. I could not have looked after him in and, and and done that for him looked after him in that way as I did when he came into the world and when he was helpless and i I would have wanted to do that and I understand that many people wouldn't and couldn't but I would have wanted to do that and the organization the state the whatever it is the police authorities have had taken my son and were, had taken him and were doing with him what they felt best to do and I was suddenly an outsider and not able to do things for my son and he was somebody else's property. It felt as if he was somebody else's property and I had to ask permission to go and see him and I had to be observed whilst I did and in my particular case having a background as a nurse I had I had laid out other people and and yet I could have nothing to do with my son's care after he died and suddenly it was a case it was an operation it it had a code name he his death had a code name and was the subject of interest for other people and I was in a position of having to inquire what had happened and and not being able to to be close to him and I would ask for more understanding and flexibility and looking at individuals and their skills and capabilities and and desires and needs in that situation. Because I that was devastating to not be able to function in that way.
1: And I suppose this all culminates in for doctors, if you are saying an- A&E, and you have to break the news of a traumatic death to a family member or a friend, what kind of things should you keep in mind when, when doing that?
5: I think doctors should remember that all family members are different, and there may be some family members who wish to see the body of the person who died, whereas other family members may not wish to. I think it's important that they prepare the person for what they might see. One other thing I think health professionals should think about is that when relatives are talking about the person they lost, health professionals should listen to the way in which relatives talk about the body. If relatives talk about the body as him or her or by name as John or Charlotte, then the professionals should talk about the body in the same way so as not to cause offence. And give people plenty of time to think about it and allow them time to make that decision and maybe change their decision. So not rush them. Give them time to think about it. But not dissuade them from seeing the body of somebody they loved.
1: To let them make their own decision about it. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we heard from Pat uh, in the podcast, but there are many more people that you talk to. Where can people find out here or... Read any more of the accounts.
5: Yes, people can hear and see many of the experiences of the 80 people that I interviewed about a bereavement due to a traumatic death on the website. The website's called Health Talk Online. That's www.healthtalkonline.org.
1: Great. Well, Alison, thank you very much for joining us today.
5: Thank you.
0: And that research is available for free on BMJ.com. Now, Mabel Chu, here's the latest alert from the NPSA.
6: I have with me today Dr John Scarpello, who is Deputy Medical Director at the National Patient Safety Agency, and Ms Tara Lamont, who's Head of Response at the NPSA. Welcome, both of you. I'd like to start today uh, discussing an article which you've both written for the BMJ on the risks of tourniquets left on after finger and toe surgery. Now, why is this possibly a problem? Tell us.
3: As you know, we review all the various incidents, serious incidents and otherwise, that get reported to us, to the reporting and learning system. And some little time ago, we became aware uh, that particularly some young children were uh, having problems having received a tourniquet around their finger for a small operation, when unfortunately the tourniquet hadn't been removed in time. And sadly, this could even result in some instances of the child or an adult losing part of that finger or the whole finger. And although this wasn't perhaps the same as uh, the very serious harm of transplanting the wrong kidney or uh, or cutting off the wrong leg. Nevertheless, the impact on that child, for the rest of their life, was substantial.
7: Yeah, I mean, we received around fifteen serious incidents, and, and these were reported by doctors and nurses. And two of them uh, resulted in amputations. I, th- I think what was apparent too was the variety of methods that were being used, ranging from surgical gloves used as t- tourniquets or string in, w- in one case, red string used to um, bundle together swabs, elastic bands, catheters. There were a variety of things that were being used for forefinger and toe surgery. Um, and so the guidance that we put out at the end of last year Um, in the form of our rapid response reports, was really some very simple checks about recording time for um, putting tourniquets on and including that as part of the checking. So what can we do
6: about it? What did the NPSA come up with?
7: I think like a lot of our advice, it's really about trying to introduce safer systems. So it was about checking procedures, about... Counting recording on off times for tourniquets and having that as an integral part of the um, procedure, but also importantly, using um, kite marked tourniquets. So, there are existing devices that are made for that purpose, Um, and we're suggesting they should be brightly coloured. Um, and or with a label so there's some sort of safety feature which makes that kind of inadvertent leaving on of tourniquets less likely to happen.
6: Is there anything else that you suggest or advise the individual clinician might do to avoid patients coming to harm from tourniquets?
7: I think partly it's about raising awareness in the clinical team. So um, to, be ins- to, to ensure that um, the staff are aware of, of the signs of tissue ischemia and possible problems that might be caused by um, a tourniquet being left on.
6: And possibly prompting patients or their carers before they leave um, that these are the signs to look out for. Does your report uh, actually mention what the signs and symptoms
7: might be that doctors should advise patients on? It does, yes. We have a sort of clinical briefing sheet that went out at the same time as our guidance which lists some of those uh, symptoms. Looking for discoloured skin, pulseless, paralysed or cold digits um, and other early signs of necrosis and gangrene.
3: The awareness is the main thing. The the awareness of that you've put a tourniquet on and therefore you have to have a system to ensure you take it off when the procedure is completed. As with any other surgical procedure it's a question of counting them out and counting them back and that's really what we're trying to achieve here.
6: Now, readers may be aware that the BMJ has recently started a new series entitled Safety Alerts in collaboration with the National Patient Safety Agency. The series itself is based on rapid response reports that the NPSA put out. Perhaps you'd like to tell us a bit um, about the RRRs that the NPSA issue to trusts.
7: Each RRR starts with a a story, really. It starts with an individual incident that's reported by a doctor or nurse and gets uploaded to us. We have a team of clinical staff who review these incidents and they pick out, really, is there something here that could be shared more widely across the service?
3: And is there some sort of preventable fix that others could learn from? We're really, if you like, piggybacking on to good practice. We're giving examples of when, sadly, things have gone wrong. So it's an important issue. And we're working very much as a catalyst with these clinical teams. So we're not inventing the clinical process. We're really going to the experts to tell us. And in most instances, uh, a good clinical team are well aware of the problems, but not all of them have quite seen a way to prevent Uh, the unthinkable happening and that's what we're trying to help and
6: I think in your commentary uh, introducing the series you mentioned the power of stories certainly some of the quotes that you've included in the BMJ safety alerts have resonated with me as a clinician Um, you mentioned the the chest drain uh, report and which appeared as a safety alert in December last year Uh, I'd like to read a, a tip what you call a typical incident report and this is a quote Right-sided chest drain inserted into patient. Couldn't find complete chest drain kit on ward. Tip of drain seen within right lobe of liver. No record of ultrasound performed. Liver injury incurred and patient sent to intensive therapy unit. Now, that's a salutary lesson because I think Many clinicians like me will think, there but for the grace of God go I. Um, and I think it's, it's vital, as you say, that you go to the experts in, in this field and, and they do come back with such powerful stories.
0: That's all for this week. Don't forget you can comment on these articles and others by going to bmj.com. Next week we'll be talking to Emily Friedman about the challenges facing Cambodia as it rebuilds its healthcare system. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.